Bankless Nation, welcome to the State of the Nation, where today we are asking the question, can the Fed thread the needle? Can the Fed thread the needle between inflation and a recession? We've been going on this world tour of macro. It started with the banking crisis, the Bology bit signal, followed by Arthur Hayes, Ben Hunt, and finally Jim Bianco. And so Bankless Nation, while this is a macro episode, the conversation here today is not a part of that macro world tour. Today, we are bringing back on Ite Vinik. We've had him on once before. He is coming equipped with a mass of graphics, slides, charts to walk us through an extremely thorough audit of the U.S. economy, the banking sector, the equities market, risk assets, and interest rates and inflation, all in the hopes of answering can the Fed thread the needle between decreasing inflation while not triggering a recession? So just a, a snapshot this, we have core inflation that is yet to turn over. That thing is still up and to the right. We have consumer health running on fumes and we have a Federal Reserve that is still increasing interest rates in the face of a banking crisis. Itai thinks the next three months are critical to seeing what happens next in global markets everywhere. And he's going to walk us through all of the data to help us understand this picture Bankless Nation, this is a very, very visual heavy podcast. So if you have the luxury of watching this video on YouTube or on Spotify, this would be one of those episodes to do that. Although I do my best to articulate the charts and the vibe along the way for all the podcast listeners, it would be useful to be able to watch this visually. Ryan, the AI is powered down for today's show. It's just me, but Itai is a fantastic guest who's in the driver's seat for this show with all of his slides. Last thing before we get into the show, are you a subscriber to Bankless? Are you a Bankless citizen? Why not? Because there are so many cool perks of being a Bankless citizen. In our Discord, the Bankless Nation Discord, I've got my own Q&A room if you want to come and chat with me and ask me questions directly. And if you want this podcast, but without the ads, there is an ad-free RSS feed for the ad-free listening experience. It also comes with an extra podcast that we do after every single Monday episode, just me and Ryan, raw thoughts right after we record the episode. There's also the token Bible from our analysts, which is our library of research of every single good token that's out there, overweight, underweight, neutral, uh, all the research and the catalyst. It's a living document that's updated by our regular two chat analysts at Bankless. Also, if you're a Bankless citizen, you get 30% off of to the permissionless conference, which means that the cost of Bankless premium just pays for itself. So now that I am done shilling my own products, let's get right into the show with Itai Vinik to answer the question, can the Fed thread the needle. But first, we've got to talk about our lovely sponsors who make this show possible, especially Kraken, who not only makes this show possible, but also makes buying Bitcoin and Ether possible. Because if you've been listening to all of this banking crisis episodes that we've been doing recently, the time to buy a non-sovereign store of value asset is perhaps now. So make sure you use Kraken when it comes time to buy your non-banking crypto asset of choice. Kraken has been a leader in the crypto industry for the last 12 years. Dedicated to accelerating the global adoption of crypto, Kraken puts an emphasis on security, transparency, and client support, which is why over 9 million clients have come to love Kraken's products. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, the Kraken UX is simple, intuitive, and frictionless, making the Kraken app a great place for all to get involved and learn about crypto. For those with experience, the redesigned Kraken Pro app and web experience is completely customizable to your trading needs, integrating key trading features into one seamless interface. Kraken has a 24-7, 365 client support team that is globally recognized. Kraken support is available wherever, whenever you need them, by phone, chat, or email. And for all of you NFTers out there, the brand new Kraken NFT beta platform 
platform gives you the best NFT trading experience possible. Rarity rankings, no gas fees, and the ability to buy an NFT straight with cash. Does your crypto exchange prioritize its customers the way that Kraken does? And if not, sign up with Kraken at kraken.com bankless. Arbitrum One is pioneering the world of secure Ethereum scalability and is continuing to accelerate the Web3 landscape. Hundreds of projects have already deployed on Arbitrum One, producing flourishing DeFi and NFT ecosystems. With the recent addition of Arbitrum Nova, gaming and social dApps like Reddit are also now calling Arbitrum home. Both Arbitrum One and Nova leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum and provide a builder experience that's intuitive, familiar, and fully EVM compatible. On Arbitrum, both builders and users will experience faster transaction speeds with significantly lower gas fees. With Arbitrum's recent migration to Arbitrum Nitro, it's also now 10 times faster than before. Visit Arbitrum.io where you can join the community, dive into the developer docs, bridge your assets, and start building your first dApp. With Arbitrum, experience Web3 development the way it was meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. Learning about crypto is hard. Until now, introducing MetaMask Learn, an open educational platform about crypto, Web3, self-custody, wallet management, and all the other topics needed to onboard people into this crazy world of crypto. MetaMask Learn is an interactive platform with each lesson offering a simulation for the task at hand, giving you actual practical experience for navigating Web3. The purpose of MetaMask Learn is to teach people the basics of self-custody and wallet security in a safe environment. And while MetaMask Learn always takes the time to define Web3 specific vocabulary, it is still a jargon-free experience for the crypto curious user. Friendly, not scary. MetaMask Learn is available in 10 languages with more to be added soon, and it's meant to cater to a global Web3 audience. So are you tired of having to explain crypto concepts to your friends? Go to learn.metamask.io and add MetaMask Learn to your guides to get onboarded into the world of Web3. Bankless Nation, I want to introduce you to Itai Vinik. He is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Equi, an alternative investment platform that brings sophisticated investment strategies to accredited investors. Uh, and Itai has been on Bankless once before. And of course, the goal of uh, Equi is to make non-correlated investment strategies accessible to as many people as possible. The last time we had Itai on Bankless, it was December of 2022. And back then, Things were kind of dark, I would say. Uh, Post-FTX, crypto hadn't recovered yet. Fed still looks like it was going to continue to punch us in the stomach over and over again. And so we are bringing him back on today to ask, perhaps, has anything changed as it relates to the Fed policy, to the United States economy, and also perhaps our beloved risk assets as well? Itai, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back here. Like I said, Itai, the last time we brought you on, December of 2022, uh, there were four main points of conversation, uh, four main themes that we had, four main questions. The first was, how did we get here? Here being uh, wrecked, <laughs> at least in risk assets, but also with just high interest rates and uh, no end in sight for the Fed raising interest rates. And then the next question is, where are we now? in the crypto land, in the status of the United States economy. The third was, when do we pivot? And the fourth was, is this the end? And at least for these last two, I remember the answer being, uh, no, this isn't the end, uh, but it does seem close. And in the, the conclusion of that episode is that you estimated some sort of pivot, some sort of uh, revitalization of the stock market, equities, uh, even perhaps risk assets sometime around the middle of 2023. So here we are in early April. 
Uh, and it's about that time to start to revitalize this conversation, return to this conversation. Uh, so to start this conversation off, before we get into your updated April 2023 slides, is there any sort of a reflection or anything you want to say about that snapshot in time that we talked about uh, last December? Um, yeah, I think it was really uh, interesting and things have pretty much progressed um, with along expectations in a way. Um, it's typical that Fed hiking policies break something. Um, we didn't know what that something would look like at that time, um, but we knew it's going to go. If, if you recall, we talked about it going from crypto world at, the, at that time, FTX um, and the liking into the real world. And now, you know, we've we're behind SVB. Signature Bank um, and potentially others. So we've seen that leak going uh, here, and I think now is really the most interesting time, um, as you know what uh, that that old quote used to say that sometimes we, uh, years happen in weeks. I think we're approaching uh, one of those times in the economic cycle. Right now, we are. You think? I think yeah. I think within the balance of this year is going to be incredibly interesting, as many inflection points in macro are pointing to. Um, a really unique end to 23. Okay, so um, before we get into, again, the, the 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 updated slides that you have for us and the updated perspective that, that you're going to bring to the table here in, in this episode, I just want to provide a little bit of a context for listeners about uh, who you are, your skill set, your background, and also what Equi is and why we have so many fantastic things to look at just to provide some context for, for listeners. So let's start with that. Who, who, are, who are you, Itai? And then also what is uh, Equi and what does it do? Yeah, so I'm, I'm the CIO, Chief Investment Officer um, and Co-Founder here at Equi. Um, Equi is basically a digital tech platform that enables an accredited investor uh, with a relatively low dollar amount to build a diversified portfolio of many alternatives, um, various types of, let's say, hedge fund strategies, credit strategies, other things that are not necessarily correlated with the stock and bond world. Um, and I think in these type of times, it's one of the uh, more unique uh, things you can invest in. And I, I, Obviously, I wouldn't be doing it otherwise, but I think there's a greater need for diversification outside of the traditional investing world. Mm -hmm. And uh, the actually, the, the way that this second show came about was I ran into to your co-founder uh, and he was talking about uh, just he said he said that you had some mm -hmm. perhaps doom and gloom as it relates to <laughs> the Federal Reserve. Uh, so so we'll, we'll get into that as well. But um, can you just like give a preview of uh, the performance of, of what some of these products that you have for the for and like the composition of them, just so we can understand the, the base? Yeah, so the broader type of equity portfolio has 13 to 15 uh, diversified investments. Some of them are somewhat correlated to markets, but capture a higher beta. Some of them are not. Um, we initiated what we called equity hedge in February of 2022, when we saw that correlation picked up, even across managers that are not supposed to be correlated as a way to somewhat offset risk even more. So in 2022, which I believe was one of the most challenging investing years, um, really since the global financial market uh, crisis in 08, uh, our flagship growth and income fund was slightly positive, about positive 1% with very low beta and correlation. The more aggressive growth fund um, was flat to maybe negative uh, 40 or 50 basis points or something of that nature. So um, flat performance, I would say in 2022 uh, for the broader flagship um, is something to be proud of in, in a year where uh, the 60-40 portfolio is down nearly 20%. Treasuries are down. Crypto is down at 70%. Gold is down. Like uh, uh, Everything was down. There was almost nowhere to hide. So proud of that fact. 
We also have a fund that we manage internally as well that is a tactical macro fund based on the macro calls. Um, that that was actually up around 20% for 2022. Okay, so um, I don't know if I represent the archetype of bankless listeners, but uh, bankless listeners would definitely know that more or less 100% of my personal portfolio is crypto assets. (laughs) And so starting at that base, uh, what is the composition of uh, the, if you could just amalgamate everything, and maybe that's an unfair question, but uh, we could like do your best. If you could just amalgamate everything, what, what is the composition of some of these things that, that we're talking about, just so we can get some context before we go into some of these charts and slides here. Yeah, so the flagship fund is really a collection of various types of strategies. So you have some small business lending on one end, um, you know, that's backed by some collateral all the way to macro systematic uh, funds that uh, would trade currencies, interest rates, uh, things of that nature and everything in between. So it's really a very diversified uh, basket of uh, of alternatives that we really try to keep as low uh, correlation to risk assets as, as humanly possible. Okay, so uh, the average crypto person, again, I would say is heavily concentrated in crypto. And when we hear diversification, like uh, at least a decent part of many of listeners will be like, oh yeah, different NFT collections or... <laughs> Bitcoin and Ether in addition to like right. some some small caps. But so we're talking about what kind of seems to be completely opposite end of the spectrum in terms of just like what actually diversification means as in we're talking like real world traditional markets diversification. Right. Uh, and so uh, and so this is like the, the right perspective to go into when we talk about some of the, these uh, slides and conversations that we're about to go into. Correct. Right. So one of the things that I think is is of note is that institutions, uh, large family offices, endowments, and things of the liking, um, since the 1980s have been moving their portfolio more and more into alternatives and less and less into stocks and bonds. And that's actually in, in response to this decades-long declining interest rate environment we've been in, right? So interest rate peak in the 81, 82 in the mid-double digits on the 10-year uh, treasury and have been going down towards zero in 2020. Now they've gone back up towards 4%. But as you're getting less juice from bonds, um, and also valuations have gone become very rich with that, um, most of these institutions have shifted their portfolio into alts, um, you know, 50% all the way to 80% in some family offices. And the traditional um, retail investor just doesn't have access to any of those. So um, that's really the mission behind equity that we thought that bringing that type of portfolio to the average investor is something that we believe the market is... Um, is looking for. Yeah. And, and when you say alts, you're not meaning uh, alt layer ones or uh, crypto alt tokens, right? These are, <laughs> again, no. uh, alternative <laughs> asset classes, correct? <laughs> and and particularly strategies. So even, even when you dig into that, not all alts are created equal. There is a mm-hmm. huge difference between the top 5-10% of outperformers and the bottom of the pile. And there's a ton of funds out there that are just buying risk assets and charging a high fee for that. So those are not the ones we're looking for. We're looking for unique strategies. We're looking for differentiation and we're looking for um, much lower correlation than uh, traditional assets. So it's a big difference between I own stocks, bonds, and crypto, and I have all these different hedge fund strategies that each one does something totally different. Right. Okay. So I hope that was helpful for Bankless listeners and myself to really um, understand where where you're coming from and where your expertise lies. And I, I hope that can um, just be good context for as we go through some of the, the these uh, these conversations. Uh, so, like I said last time in December of 2020, when we had you on, there there were four main questions: How do we get here? Where are we now? When do we pivot? Is this the end? Uh, 
Uh, Itai, I believe you're coming to the table with four new questions. So, so maybe it's time to to break open the slides and and we can start to talk about these high level discussions that we're going to go through today. Yeah, let's dig. Uh, let's dig right in. So, starting this, uh, the topics for today, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the macro environment and the overview of what led to these bank collapses that we've heard about. The biggest question again is, do the bank failures actually make the Fed pivot? Um, as of the last few weeks, at least, uh, it seems like the market is convinced that that is the case. Um, we'll dig into that and see whether or not that is true. Uh, we'll talk about the positioning in the current economic environment, some of the future of the banking system. And generally, uh, we're still going to try to answer the question of whether or not we're going to have the soft landing, hard landing, or catastrophic landing, because regardless of the Fed pivot, that is actually going to guide the prices of risk assets even more so. Um, there is a lot of dependency on the Fed, but the Fed is not the only game in town. Okay, beautiful. And I remember uh, the last conversation, uh, this also is where this started and ended, is soft landing, hard landing versus catastrophic landing. I think that's kind of the, the overarching theme here is, can the Fed thread the needle? Uh, and yes. so, uh, Itai, if you could just uh, like run back us in time to December of, of 2022 when we last had you on versus where we are now, did the ability for the Fed to thread the needle and get us to a soft landing, no recession, but below trend, trend growth, that's fine. Uh, did that needle get bigger or smaller? I think their job has become incrementally more difficult. Um, okay. Incrementally, we've, so not, not crazily, just, just as a little bit. But Yeah, so as uh, you know, things have not... We have the suspicion that some things are going to crack, some things have cracked, but to be fair, uh, SVB and Credit Suisse that have been on a decline for a long period of time uh, are not you know, are not huge issues um, right now in, in the economy. There are issues with the smaller banking system in general and other things like that, but this is not systemic risk right now, but that doesn't mean it can't develop into systemic risk later. Okay, well, so uh, back in time, I remember it's like, uh, I understood that when FTX collapsed, I was like, this is not going to be the crack that they're looking for. Much of the people in the crypto industry are like, oh, the banking sector is going under. This is clearly the <laughs> thing, the signal that the Fed needs to, to back off. And right. what you're saying is like, maybe that's not the case. Just what's the rationale for that not being the case? Just once more time. Yeah, so... The rationale is that inflation and employment, which are the two main mandates for the Fed, are really what you need to watch for. Uh, we have some slides talking about both. Um, but mm -hmm. as of right now, at least in employment, which is a lagging indicator, is still fairly strong and inflation is still high um, and is much stickier than, than um, was predicted before. In December, if you recall, um, we talked about inflation likely becoming stickier and longer than the market expects. And that's exactly how that actually played out. So you can make the argument that the Fed has reacted aggressively to this banking crisis because they are looking to still fight inflation. So, you know, it's almost mm -hmm. like you you turn a fire uh, with one bucket, but then you light a fire with uh, somewhere else. Okay, beautiful. All right. So where, where did this conversation start? Where, where are we going to uh, inject ourselves into this conversation? Yeah, so I wanted to just talk about the wealth destruction that already took place, just to give you some context of you know, last time we gave a much bigger history of how did we get here? I want to keep this a little bit shorter. Um, sure. But generally, uh, in total dollars, so of course, this is not adjusted for inflation, and it's a little exaggerated for that reason. But this has been the largest dollar wealth destruction um, that we've seen uh, thus far, particularly because bonds in 2022, 
which have traditionally been this diversifier, typically uncorrelated um, with other risk assets, have crashed just as much as stocks and even more, um, which is relatively unusual. But that's because interest rates were so low, and we've seen the fastest uh, rate cycle increase since uh, Volcker, really, in the uh, 1980s. Mm-hmm. So massive wealth destruction. For those of us um, that like these type of, uh, you know, I, I, I come from the startup world as well, right, as you run, uh, raise money from a VC, um, you know, this will look very similar to the chart of ARK Invest as well, and probably the chart of crypto as well. Um, the non-profitable tech index, really. So non-profitable companies, it's the it's the same it's the same idea as borrowing money on on some kind of interest rate because you can think of these companies as living on a credit card. When money is very cheap, um, they tend to do very well. When money is more expensive, it's a much more challenging environment. Post COVID, huge boom. Um, Twenty twenty two, huge bust. The biggest problem um, when you think about these types of assets is the negative negative compounding of loss. So I'm going to remind everyone here that risk management is even more important um, than capturing all the gains. Because if you lose 90% on any asset, you need to make a 1000% return in order to get your money back, right? You need a 10x. Mm-hmm. If you lose 50% of your money, you need to double it up. You need to make 100%. So the net, the net conclusion is that you need to avoid losing large amounts of money when possible. So just a little reminder of that. So just to re-articulate that, are you saying that it is more important to preserve wealth than it is to gain wealth after you've already gained wealth? I, I believe so. I believe so exactly for that reason. So, you know, when you're down 76% or in, in this case, I think it was 90%, this 20, 30%, 40% increase is almost irrelevant because you're still down 76% for the top. <laughs> you know, once you lose 90%, it's very difficult right. to make a 10 xer Right, certainly, and I, I really like this uh, this chart that we're looking at: uh, non-profitable text uh, tech index. Uh, and uh, for those podcast listeners, it, it doesn't look exactly like the crypto market cap chart. There's a little bit of deviation there, but man, you can really see it. And I, I think what you're really saying here, uh, Itai, is that this chart in particular is like an amalgamation of the non-profitable tech sector and i mean a, a large amount of like what crypto resembles to be is like it only kind of works in a low interest rate environment and so the, this chart that I'm, I'm looking at here kind of feels just like the archetype of the long tail risk asset uh yolo money uh kind of paradigm that we went through both in equities market and the crypto market in the in the uh 2021 bull market that's a funny way fun way to interpret this chart right like it's a, an archetype of all of the the casino that was 2021 you're you're exactly right and that casino was not only confined to public markets also to mm-hmm. private markets so mm-hmm. To give you some ideas of what happened to startup and tech valuations in the private markets, Series A down 50%, Series B down 74%, Series C down 87%, Series D up to 92% decline. It's just staggering. And so the, these are companies that have already raised, where this is not like an average of just like the uh, right. total amount of spend. These are companies that have benchmarks that we can compare to. And you're saying that Series D valuations which is usually the the fourth, fifth, uh, depending on seed rounds, the fourth or fifth raise for a, a venture uh, for a startup. And that is on average is down 92%. Wow. Yeah. So it just gives you a little bit of a magnitude of 
the bubble that we've seen in 2021, mm-hmm. uh, which I'll talk a little bit about m- uh, more. I think 2022 was not a traditional bear market in multiple senses. I think it's more of a re-rating cycle, wherein the economy is still strong, but valuations were just too high for the current interest rate environment. They were changing, so the market re-rated. The question now is whether or not we're going into a traditional bear market once the re-rating was complete, or are we going to stabilize? That's more or less where where I'm where I'm at. I think the re-rating part is more or less complete. And so the re-rating, this word, I think um, maybe perhaps another way to say this is that uh, we should never really we shouldn't consider the 2022 decline in crypto asset prices or or asset prices in general as a bear market. You're just saying that like we should never have assumed them to have established that high in 2021 in the first place, right? It was like an, correct. It, was like it, a, it, it, it only made sense in the context of zero interest rates, money printing, right. and hot money chasing assets. But if you think about it in the context of longer term valuations, right. it never made sense to begin with. Okay, so does that mean that the question of if bear market? Uh, I remember asking like, are we in a bear market on on Bankless like over and over and over again through 2022, and then towards the end of 22, it was like, oh yeah, this is a bear market. But I think what you're perhaps saying is like. No, the question to ask that question is now, not now's the time. That is exactly right. I look at the entirety of 2022 as a re-rating cycle. And mainly because in, tr- in normal uh, generic bear markets, the, the yield curve inverts ahead of the bear market here, um, or, or the yield curve starts to disinvert as you go into the bear market. That actually didn't happen. Uh, yield curve uh, massively inverted while stocks were going down, but also the bond market has declined alongside with stocks. So everything got re-rated. Um, and really what, what we've seen over the past few weeks is some deviation in correlation. So for the first time in a while, we've seen uh, bonds actually rise as equities were falling. Correlations were starting to break with the dollar as well. And the yield curve went from negative 100 back to minus 50 basis points, all signs of a potential coming recession or bear market. Um, those were the classic things that were happening ahead of, of an actual bear market. So again, the, 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 the question is, you know, is 2022 even a bear market or just basically adjustment of prices to higher interest rates? Okay. That's an interesting perspective where, uh, we just are coming back to reality throughout 2022. And now the big question is like, okay, what is the economy's reaction to that re-rating and is that reaction a bear market and what you're saying is like some of the indications are like eh, yeah it could be a bear market but the economy itself remained resilient employers were still holding um you know still hiring unemployment didn't really pick up that much in 2022 um and um, even though inflation was high the economy and consumer spending were still strong and gdp was positive so in the classic sense it wasn't a bear market at all mm, okay um i might beginning the hint that this is slightly different now but let's keep going in in the in your flow of slides here yeah so bank failures um fed always breaks something every hiking cycle something breaks this is something we brought on in the last call clearly don't always know what it is that's going to break but the takeaway here is really that once something starts happening and starts breaking it can accelerate incredibly quickly so if you go back to march uh silvergate said they will cease operations on March 8. And by March 10, SVB uh, is already failing. Um, and by March 19, Credit Suisse was failing. So SNB, the Swiss National Bank, actually said, I believe yesterday or the day before, they were saying that it would have taken just a single more trading day for Credit Suisse to have completely defaulted. Um, wow. So 
things can accelerate quite a bit. That's why we've seen this very fast response uh, from the Fed and the SMB. Uh, all these actions with the discount window. We're going to talk about that because I think they're actually really important to um, to understand the mechanics of how these things work uh, in the greater context of risk assets. Okay, and, and so. <laughs> God, that's scary. So uh, March 8th, Silvergate, which was before the what we call the banking crisis, just Silvergate announced that it would cease operations. 11 right. days later, Credit Suisse says that it's one day away from complete failure. That's right. Uh, yeah. The, it, it's always crazy to see how like fast, uh, this is all like hive mind stuff, right? This all exists in the perception layer of humans. And that can, of course, go as fast as the internet these days. Right. And, 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 and you know, it's, it's, this explains the very aggressive uh, policy response. And very interestingly, risk assets took that as a very bullish sign of liquidity and have been running since around March 19th um, to the upside. And I think one of the one of the things we really have to consider is, does this actually mean that the bottom is in and liquidity is improving or not? And this mm-hmm. is just another one of these vicious bear market rallies that suck everybody in, but then it's about to make lower lows. And um, I'll try to answer that today. Cool. All right, let's keep on going. So I think the driver of all these things at the end of the day is just money, right? Do you have more money or do you have less money? And ultimately that impacts the pricing of most assets. So 2022 and into 2023 is actually the first time that we've seen that money growth itself, M2 money supply, is negative on a year-over-year basis. Um, we've seen this enormous wall of money come in out of COVID, which really fueled inflation and risk assets and Bitcoin and tech stocks and all these things. And now we're seeing that going negative. And at the same time, you see that money supply here um, on the top chart. This is the total M2 in the United States, M2 broader definition of money supply. And you can see how correlated it is with bank deposits. Mm-hmm. So. There is this very interesting narrative um, taking place where if you have money in depository accounts, the banks can't afford to pay you what the prevailing interest rate is um, for various reasons. Uh, Inverted yield curve is one of them, um, other liabilities, et cetera. So why are you keeping your money at the bank? Wouldn't you be better off putting your cash in a short-term treasury earning 5%? Certainly. Taking no risk? No FDIC insurance, right? So more people are understanding that money is moving away from banks, but clearly um, the smaller banks are suffering a lot more than the big banks. Um, But this is all a function of the money supply itself. There's just simply uh, a decrease in the money supply as a result of the Fed's quantitative tightening. And really quickly on this, my interpretation of of this, and just to correct me if I'm wrong, is that um, people are, are moving their money, and we've talked about this particular theme on Bankless, people are moving their money out of banks into money markets because that is where they get their yield. Uh, Jim Bianco called this like TradFi yield farming. The, yes. the, why this is significant is that when we take our money out of banks and into money markets, we are destroying credit because that, those banks can't lend that money out, and therefore we are reducing M2, and that is a deflationary pressure on the economy. Is that the the, the meaning that we should derive from this? That's very fair, uh, but also M2 itself is declining as a result of the Fed's actions of quantitative tightening. So in oh, this okay. chart, you, you can see what's going on. So what is quantitative tightening? Is the exact opposite of quantitative easing. So during the periods of the easing in 2020, 2021, and really after 08 as well, 
uh, 09 through uh, really 2018. Um, the Fed was creating money out of thin air and using that money to purchase US treasuries, therefore increasing the amount of liquidity in the economy. But what you're seeing here is that starting uh, in 2022, that actually went in reverse. So instead of creating money out of thin air and buying treasuries, as these treasuries mature, the Fed is receiving its principal back. So right, if you buy a treasury, you get a coupon rate. And then at the end of the period, you get your money back, which is your principal. Uh, so in this case, the Fed is getting their principal back from the treasury, which is the money they created. And they click the delete button and simply destroy it. So there's just straight up less money in the economy. And there's no sign of that ending. And that's supposed to be the status quo moving forward. And so the idea is that uh, for bankless listeners that weren't able to see that last slide, we're seeing growth in M2 money supply over the last like four decades. And now it's starting to like turn over and finally go negative for the first time ever. And what you're saying, Itai, is that that's probably going to continue. Is that right? That's probably going to continue. Uh, the Fed has not said that they're going to stop that. But some interesting things have happened. Um, okay. So this is the Fed balance sheet going back to 1995. It correlates incredibly well with risk assets. You see the first quantitative easing starts coming out of 08, um, being halted. Markets crash in 2010, comes back again. Halted, markets crash again in 2011. Uh, U.S. credit gets downgraded August 2011, markets down 20%. QE comes back. Every time the Fed needs to do a bigger and bigger QE in order to pump things up again, and then the really big one happens after COVID, uh, basically almost doubling everything that was done up until that point. The balance sheet reaches almost 10 trillion, 9 trillion and change. And then the tightening starts. Um, all this damage in the market was just during this period of tightening. However, over the last two weeks, there has been a big jump in the Fed's balance sheet as a result of the support that the Fed is giving banks to the discount window. So I've heard this question asked numerous times um, from many people over the last two weeks. They're asking me, is this basically stealth QE that's going on? Is the market responding to the stealth QE? Is crypto jumping all this on the stealth QE? And is this right. going to continue? Right. Yes. And this is, of course, the bank term funding program that, that we've talked about. And the, the last, uh, the last, and I think most coherent answer that we got is that technically it counts, but it shouldn't be considered meaningful. And it's not like the QE that we've seen before. Is this your interpretation as well? My, yeah, I, I agree with that interpretation, and I would even add that I think it's actually worse. So I think oh. in a way, I think in a way, it could be, um, it could create further issues in the system when this actually gets paid back, because it's expensive money, unlike uh, QE, which is very cheap money, um, and that could create some issues. So what you're seeing here in this chart, um, going back to 2003, is the total amount of discount window borrowing that's taking place. Uh, this is 08. Mm -hmm. That's COVID. And this is the 153 billion jump we've seen in three days just to, to cover the reserve. And this is obviously showing up on the Fed's balance sheet as it is borrowing. Um, but this is a sign of, of financial stress in the system nonetheless, because right. banks are pretty desperate that they have to do this. This this is spike. So uh, just for the podcast listeners, uh, we have this 08 spike, which is decently large, maybe two thirds the way up the page and also has some decent area under the curve. But then it goes back down and stays flat until we see uh, COVID, and then COVID happens. And it's a small spike, maybe a third of the size of the 08 spike. And then here we are today with the bank term funding program, and that is a insanely vertical line all the way up to the top of the graph, which is maybe a third larger than, than 2008. And what you're saying, Itai, is that this is a sign of distress. And so maybe the, the naive bull person is like, 
this is QE. Here we go. Look how fast that thing's going up. And what you're saying is like, you know, you know, let's tamp on those brakes. This is a symptom of distress and it's necessary that this spike happens or else the banking system would collapse, correct? That's correct. And I'll add to it as well. Um, this is also dependent on the prevailing interest rate that, that exists. So if you think about it, there is a lending rate which banks use to lend to each other. So let's say bank number one needs money today because there's a deposit run on them. They can go to bank number two and say, okay, can you lend me money at this overnight rate and I'll pay you back? And then they change and these banks lend to each other all the time. When these banks don't want to lend to each other because they're worried that they may be next in a bank run, for example, that creates a credit problem because the whole credit market freezes and that's the worst thing that can happen to capitalism. So then the Fed is this lender, lender of last resort uh, that banks can go to uh, to borrow money, but this money is not cheap. This money is at the around the Fed fund rate. So when they're borrowing this money, they're actually paying 5% for it, right? If interest rates were zero, that would have been a very different very different environment, right? Because then you're really borrowing for nothing. So who cares? That's real more, more like QE. But at a 5% rate, that's not cheap money that the banks have to carry the interest and then pay back. Uh, and potentially, they're only using this money to substitute for reserves. So I don't know if it adds net liquidity into the system, maybe for a short period of time. But there will be a time where you have to either pay it back, which will reduce the balance sheet, or the stress gets even bigger. And this is just not enough to help, especially given the interest rate environment. So I thought the bank term funding program was a policy to borrow from the Federal Reserve at like 10 basis points. Uh, and, and so you're telling me it's at 5%. What, what, what am I missing here? Well, this is different. This is the discount window. The borrowing program uh, is a little bit different where they uh, they pledge their treasuries and they, they let them basically carry it up with, without a loss. So that's, that's definitely more stimulative. But there's also a lot oh. of borrowing at the discount window. Okay, so the the capital that's being created as a result of the bank term funding program is not what this spike is showing here on this chart. Yeah, the the discount window is direct borrowing from from the Fed, from and, out of just necessity from banks. Yes, and so you're saying out of necessity these banks are taking like emergent call it emergency credit, emergency funding at the Fed funds rate, which is like at five percent, and so. They're willing to take this 5% very unfavorable rate because of how dire the situation is for, for the banking sector? Right, or at least it was. Uh, and I think borrowing actually declined a little bit over the last few days. So the sign of stress is, is dropping a little, uh, but it's okay. still fairly elevated. Um, this would happen here after Lehman. Uh, when this spike went up, um, markets actually continue to go lower uh, for, I think, six months um, until things actually calm down. And the main idea behind why are banks in trouble, we covered this, right? When they, in 2020 and 2021, when there was this big spike in uh, deposits at the banks, they were basically getting a ton of new money creation um, that was being parked at, the, at these banks. And these banks basically bought treasuries with it or 10-year treasuries, 20-year, uh, 30-year treasuries. So the problem is, is when rates go up, bonds are inversely correlated to, to rates. So the price of treasuries went down. Um, kind of interesting, but it happened to the Fed as well. So the Fed holds a lot of treasuries, including long data treasuries on its balance sheet. So the Fed too lost $42 billion. Not that it matters because they're <laughs> they're not a for-profit organization, but they actually, right. this, this is actually a, a, an interesting thing because the same thing happened in the Fed as well. Wait, so the banking crisis where all of these like long-term dated treasuries be, uh, went south and cause the banking crisis, you're saying, well, 
the Fed is also a bank. <laughs> they also had that on their balance sheet. They also have that problem. But it's also just not a problem when it gets to the level of the Fed because it doesn't matter because they can print money, correct? When you create your own currency, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. It doesn't matter. Like, but it does, right? <laughs> it right. does somewhere. Right. <laughs> right. The I don't Fed know is, how to the Fed, the Fed is floating this, but it's just an interesting thing to uh, to kind of know. Right. Okay. All right. So where, where does this conversation go next? Like, wh what does this actually mean for liquidity? Yeah. So, so far, markets have reacted positively to this liquidity jump. Um, the uh, This offset of quantitative tightening, at least over the last two weeks, markets have jumped directly in response to it. And you can see how correlated the S&P 500 has been to the total net liquidity. So here we take the Fed balance sheet minus the treasury account minus reverse repo. Long story short, we're just looking at all that available liquidity out there. And um, markets are just correlating to that almost to perfection. Um, it is important to see where this balance sheet is going and whether or not this discount window borrowing and what happens to the banking crisis continues to loosen financial conditions or not, we don't see this as actual quantitative easing right now. Um, mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that can morph into it. I know this is uh, some crypto-centric uh, podcast in here. So here we correlated the price of BTC versus that total Fed liquidity that you can see that really strong correlation as well. Okay. So, so you're saying that it's really, really important to understand the liquidity effects of uh, the current environment. And uh, and so what I'm saying, what I'm hearing is that there is new liquidity and therefore crypto, the extra sensitive canary in the coal mine to liquidity is jumping. What I'm, what I was worried about hearing and what I'm not hearing. And so correct me if I'm wrong, is that the market is having just like this spinal reflex of, oh, the fed is pivoting, uh, in like the balance sheet's going up. Therefore it's bullish. And I don't, I don't, I'm not seeing any signs of that being the, the market reaction. And so what I'm seeing right now is like, it actually kind of makes sense. There's more liquidity in the market, at least for now. And so crypto assets and risk on assets are up like they would expect to be. That seems all normal, right? Right, right. Um, but then the big question is, is this actual QE? The answer is, right. it's probably not. Um, so, you know, even if the banking situation improves, the banks pay back the discount window. Uh, the Fed balance sheet is going to drop and the Fed is still doing quantitative tightening at the same time, which is kind of weird because you get the discount borrowing, but at the same time you have quantitative tightening. So uh, there's a lot of counterfactors that go into it. So if I'm asked the question, are we going to go into a market like 2021 that things are just up, up and away? I think the answer is probably no. Um, and we're going to have a lot more chop and volatility um, as this situation kind of unfolds. And that that tracks with our Jim Bianco conversation, which is our most recent macro conversation, where he says, like, everything just seems like there's bearish indicators and there's bullish indicators, and they all seem to kind of cancel each other out pretty damn well. And so now the markets are confused, and so we're just going to kind of go flat and chop around for a bit. Is that uh, in line with what you're saying? And that's been the case, by the way, since about August of last year. Markets have just chopped around in a range, and nothing really happened, and a lot of money was more or less lost because people didn't know where it's going, and just uh, it's very risky to get chopped to a thousand pieces in this type of environment. Um, I do believe it's going to get resolved, though, um, one way or another in the next few months. One way or another, no opinion on the direction of it getting resolved, but you do think it's going to get resolved soon? Uh, well, I, I am leaning more bearish on the resolution, uh, which okay. I'll, I'll, I'll dig into why. Uh, so if I had to pick a direction, it would be 
more likely bearish, but uh, anything can happen, right? The Fed could decide to flood us with liquidity again, and that basically throws everything out of the window. Um, and to understand that, you know, this is one of the more liquidity sensitive sectors that I've been following for a long period of time. You can look at the microcap index um, of the Russell. So um, you can think about this as the uh, most liquidity sensitive stock. So let's say the big, the big stocks, the big names, they get the liquidity first, like the Apples and the Amazons and Nvidia and all these things that are flying right now. But there are a lot of other stocks that are much more liquidity sensitive. Um, and typically the stock market does best when these stocks outperform um, the rest of the market. We're seeing a really big divergence where the microcap stocks didn't even didn't even flinch on this recent move up. Uh, if you go back to uh, December of uh, 2021, they actually topped out in November and had a big drawdown in December while markets continued upward. That was a great warning indicator for the top. Um, so this is actually giving us another warning sign right now. This is another way to think about it as you know how the market breadth looks like, how's liquidity looking like. And for the entire year-to-date gains, I think S&P is up about 7% year-to-date. This is how much of that value was given, driven by the 15 largest stocks, Apple, Microsoft, Google, et cetera and their change in market cap and the entire rest of the stock market. Now, that's so not this, this kind of feels like a similar uh, this is totally different but this feels like the similar to the fact that like in the banking crisis all of these small and medium-sized banks got worked and everything flew to safety which was the JP Morgan's, the big banks. Is this right. just the same effect happening with the stock market at large? Yeah, and it's not healthy. History shows us that when a rally in the market is very concentrated in a few names it typically doesn't hold for a long period of time. Um, so that's just something to consider. When a rally is very widespread, and um, that means the whole economy as a whole is doing better. So it's led by 300 stocks. That means there's good economic environment all around the board. Um, so that's a good sign. But when only a few stocks are leading it, this flight to quality is not necessarily a good sign. Okay, so you're adding just one more data point to the perhaps temporal nature of the recent run up in maybe crypto asset prices, the recent uh, perception of liquidity. You're just saying like, hey man, there's a there's a lot of temporary indicators out there that might not stick around. You know Uniswap as the world's largest DEX with over $1.4 trillion in trading volume, but it's so much more. Uniswap Labs builds products that lets you buy, sell, and use your self-custody digital assets in a safe, simple, and secure way. Uniswap can never take control or misuse your funds the bankless way. With Uniswap, you can go directly to DeFi and buy crypto with your card or bank account on the Ethereum Layer 1 or Layer 2s. You can also swap tokens at the best possible prices on Uniswap.org. And you can also find the lowest floor price and trade NFTs across more than seven different marketplaces with Uniswap's NFT aggregator. And coming soon, you'll be able to self-custody your assets with Uniswap's new mobile wallet. So go bankless with one of the most trusted names in DeFi by going to Uniswap.org today to buy, sell, or swap tokens and NFTs. The Phantom Wallet is coming to Ethereum. The number one wallet on Solana is bringing its millions of users and beloved UX to Ethereum and Polygon. If you haven't used Phantom before, you've been missing out. Phantom was one of the first wallets to pioneer Solana staking inside the wallet and will be offering similar staking features for Ethereum and Polygon. But that's just staking. Phantom is also the best home for your NFTs. Phantom has a complete set of features to optimize your NFT experience. Pin your favorites, hide the uglies, remove the spam, and also manage your NFT sales 
sale listings from inside the wallet. Phantom is of course a multi-chain wallet, but it makes chain management easy, displaying your transactions in a human readable format with automatic warnings for malicious transactions or phishing websites. Phantom has already saved over 20,000 users from getting scammed or hacked. So get on the Phantom waitlist and be one of the first to access the multi-chain beta. There's a link in the show notes, or you can go to phantom.app slash waitlist to get access in late February. Let's answer question. your question. Yeah. Does this force a Fed pivot? <laughs> now is the time. Uh, and I, I'm already worried about the answer, but Itai, give it to me. Yeah. So just to get this uh, this idea, this is not just the Fed phenomenon, it's a global phenomenon as well. The ECB just raised rates 50 bips in uh, March 16, and that was despite what just happened in the market. And the Fed also raised rates by 25 bips after what happened to SVD. So the Fed and the ECB had an opportunity to make an immediate pivot already, and they didn't. So the question is, does that actually mean that we're going to get a pivot or not? Um, you can see where rates are now, uh, close to 5% across the developed world after a decade plus of being around zero. Um, and the context of you know longer term history, uh, clearly, we're not going to go back to the 1980s. And right now, the market seems to think that the Fed pivot is imminent. So what you're seeing in this graph, quite an interesting graph, is called the Fed dot plot. Um, this is released uh, a few times a year uh, during FOMC meetings, uh, Federal Open Market Committee. And what is going on here is that each member of the Fed gets a dot. So that's where they vote of where interest rates are going to be in the future. So that's 2023, 2024, 2025. So there's a lot of consensus around the dots that rates are going to be somewhere between five and a quarter and five and a half percent, where most members of the FOMC believe that's where things are going to land. And then there's a lot more divergence into 2024. You can see the dots are all over the place. However, the market is substantially below where the Fed dot plot is, um, kind of believing that rates are going to get cut drastically this year, where the Fed said... Um, it is unlikely during their last meeting. So it, it, it's an interesting place to be right now where market is pricing um, the Fed completely pivoting and the Fed is not acknowledging that as of yet. So betting on the Fed pivoting is somewhat um, uncertain right now. You can see that here too, number of rate cuts. Um, if you go back to early March, uh, J-PAL actually made a, um, a speech to the Senate right before SVB collapsed that week saying that we need to be more hawkish for longer. And uh, that that was blown off through the window right, right, right away. Um, so market seems to believe a pivot is imminent as of May and cutting is aggressive cutting is coming in and we're probably gonna get cut um, three, four times by the end of the year. Okay, so you're saying the market is positioned for this case. Correct. And as what the interpretation that we can get from the Fed, the Fed dot plot, the, uh, is that those things are not necessarily lining up. Yeah. So the Fed fund futures is pricing in uh, a full on pivot. The yield curve as well. So the yield curve uh, got to negative 100 basis points. So that's the spread between the two year treasury and the 10 year treasury. Um, and that went from minus 100 to minus 50, which indicates that the two year treasury has declined, which means the market is now expecting um, lower rates on the two year time horizon. And, you know, that is an indication of the pivot as well, because the yield curve starts disinverting um, when the pivot gets closer and potentially also signaling a recession. Here's my problem with the Fed pivot narrative. Um, okay. Which, Tell me the bad news, Doc. Which I'll break. 
Powell has consistently said, and you can go back and read um, what he was saying in, in various meetings, that he's very worried about services inflation, particularly. And we are we we talked about this in December as well. Uh, we're saying, look, the 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 um, services inflation is the stickiest part, and that's the what we really need to watch for. Because once mm-hmm. that goes up, it's very difficult for it to go down. You know, once you're uh, your barber increases their 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 price by five dollars. It's not going back down, and that continues to happen. Um, so there's literally no evidence whatsoever of service inflation slowing down. In fact, that's the dark blue here below. Uh, yeah. It's become the largest component in inflation. So inflation has come down, but that has come from energy prices and a little bit of food prices and commodity prices. But services, the stickiest part, is continuing to go up. And, and and looking at this chart, it everything else seems to be able to flex up and down, at least by just the nature of the chart. And the the services is pretty linear and kind of just looks very very like like a straight arrow. Right. Not and we've even gotten some bad news over the last two days. OPEC decided to cut a million dollars of a million barrels a day of production, and oil prices shot up eight or nine percent back to eighty dollars a barrel so you're probably going to get some of the commodity inflation back in food inflation has gone back up so there's no evidence that inflation has died yet so you know all this talk about a fed pivot i think may be a little premature until we see some real signs of either the labor market collapsing which will force the fed to stop or inflation slowing down but i just don't see it right so maybe one way to to perceive this is that like there is and maybe I'm just learning about macro like live here. There's like this part of inflation that flexes quickly. And then there's this part of this uh, inflation that doesn't flex so much that it, maybe that's what core is. Uh, maybe that's why we use the word that, that, core. That's what ser- services is. Yeah. So yeah. like services is prices paid for goods and services, wages, things of that nature, where you have the more transitory part, which is energy prices, commodity prices, and things right. that fluctuate with the market. And so inflation has come down because that transitory part in inflation has come down, yet the services part, the stickier part, is not yet responding to rise uh, to the uh, rising interest rates. That's exactly so right. This is this and along with everything else that you've talked about is, I mean, maybe we're jumping into the conclusion here, but like kind of why you're saying like, yo, let's not get overly, let's not make our sentiment overly bullish here. Right. Until we see inflation really coming down, the risk that we're running is actually stagflation. So the risk that we're running is prices remain high, but the economy starts deteriorating and the Fed is stuck and unable to pivot. That is kind of the worst case scenario. And and are we heading for that scenario? It's possible. Um, Energy prices have come down, goods inflation, not going to stall too much about this. But to your point about the pivot, there is this assumption that the pivot's actually always going to be positive for risk assets, but that's not even necessarily true because it depends whether or not the pivot was too late, right? Mm. There's two cases. Pivot happens right before we go into a recession or pivot happens when we're already in a recession and the Fed is just late. And you see these instances, 1995, 98, 2019 in blue, markets and risk assets respond positively. This is measured by S&P 500. But in 1989, 2001, 2007, we were already in a recession when the pivot happened. And one year later, things were substantially worse. Hmm. So even this notion of whether or not a pivot happens, you have to put a lens on it and say, is the pivot actually happening in time or not? Is it too late? Are we 
Because remember, monetary policy works right. in the lag. Right. And so this brings us to the question, uh, where are we as it relates to a recession? First, how sure are you that we have a recession happening? And if the answer is yes, which I'm guessing the answer might be yes, uh, where are we in relation to that? Yeah, so I think about 60-70% confidence recession is coming um, very soon. Basically, the yield curve, when it starts disinverting, uh, tells us that it's usually within a few months already. Um, we know we're going to have below below trend growth. Uh, now, cast GDP has has come down substantially. So, you know, I think it's a matter of of um, towards the end of the year. Uh, GDP estimates are now showing um, one of the largest deceleration in, in real economic activity uh, of all time when you're looking at real GDP, so just for inflation. And we're seeing the consumer also not being in great shape as well. Um, so, GDP estimates are. Um, for 2023 have somewhat been revised up, but the period is showing um, below trend growth. So I think until we start getting real uh, negative numbers and real uh, unemployment figures increasing, today actually was interesting because we've seen um, we've seen some deterioration in the labor market, but not enough um, to tell us that, that, that a recession is here, but I think it is likely to be here soon. So that chart, I think, is somewhat interesting um, where we've seen on one hand, since September of 21, we have seen core inflation projections increasing uh, and growth projection decreasing. So that is potentially very stagflationary. Right. And here's what really worries me um, is the consumer, right? So U.S. economy is very consumption based. I believe about 70% of it is direct consumption. And there was some positive things happening um, during COVID because people are actually paying credit card balances quite a bit. So they're getting all right. this stimulus checks and unemployment benefits, and they didn't have any anything to spend them on because uh, everything was shut down. So just basically paying off these credit card balances. However, with inflation um, being as high as it is and cost of living exploding post-pandemic, we're at a new cycle for credit card debt. Uh, while credit card rates are really high. And one of the issues that we're seeing is that the personal savings rate on average is far below uh, pre-pandemic levels now. Um, and we're seeing this big deterioration in bank deposits, which some of it could you know, obviously be moving to higher rates, but other, um, other uh, explanations that there's more need for, for cash and liquidity. It's quite interesting. Here's that first stimulus check, and this is actually the second one. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So going back to that credit card outstanding debt, like it's like there's a it's a upwards trend up and to the right. Then we get the stimmies and people pay off their credit card. So there's a big dip. But if you just ignore that dip and put your hand over it, we're back up to the point where that line just might as well have gone straight. And right. sadly, the net effect of of rates as a result of inflation is that okay, we've continued on this trend words up and up and to the right for credit. And also rates are higher than they've ever been. So not only is, is the debt outstanding super high, the rates are also super high. And then on the next slide that we're looking at, we're looking at, at personal savings uh, and bank deposits at all time lows. And so this is this is what you are indicating. It's in like, oh, we're kind of on the, this is the ingredients for a recession, plain and simple. Yeah, so what worries me is that if layoffs now start on mass, um, the cushion to tolerate those layoffs and be able to spend and keep the economy floating is just just not not, not great. There. 
is just not there. So you can have Goldilocks in reverse where people get laid off, then they spend less and then more layoffs occur because, you know, the companies are not making as much money and margins drop and all these things can happen. So that's really what worries me about that. And the fact that if the Fed needs to ease, it needs to be now. But with inflation being where it is and sticky as it is, it's just going to be very difficult for them to do it. Okay. What what else? What else? Other bad news do you have for us? <laughs> well, it's interesting. Retail sales has 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 dropped, uh, but it's still relatively strong. Uh, a, a, an explanation to that is obviously the cost of living is higher, so people need to spend more um, right. to do it. So this is something we're watching for. As again, we are in a consumption uh, consumer led economy. We want to watch uh, how retail sales set up, and. Labor is one of the most important factors. This is one of my favorite indicators here, um, looking at risk asset versus the employment numbers. So the trend of employment, uh, putting a simple five-month moving average on it, shows the turning points in a really good way. I think COVID is a little bit of an abbreviation because a lot of people were not really laid off because they still got money and they still spend it. Um, But you can see here in the classic recessions, in 2000, the um, softening in the labor market corresponds perfectly with um, the bear market. Then the bull market corresponds perfectly with the rising employment. Again, 0809, softening labor market down stock market. So when that turn, when that line starts turning back up, you're in a persistent bull market for a very long period of time. Then you got this COVID situation. So now what I'm watching for is does unemployment start rolling over? So what I mean is this period of 2022, that's a re-rating right? Because Mm -hmm. technically we should be in a bull market, but we're not. So that's a re-rating. So do we go into the real bear market, the real recession, if this line starts rolling over and then you get the actual bear market part of it? And that's really what I'm watching for. Okay. Okay. How, what indications do we have? Or is that, is that an impossible question to answer? Yeah. So manufacturing is one of the first things to um, go into contraction territory because that's that's sensitive and that's already fallen into contraction territory. LEI is what we call leading economic indicators. So this is multiple indicators such as construction spending, you know, stock prices, a, a lot of different things. Um, so a recession has always happened when LEIs have been negative for six to eight months, which we've seen now. Um, so you can go back here, 1973, 79, 82, 90, 2000, 2008. So, you know, it's not as bad as some of those prior recessions, but it's definitely trending negative. Um, and we also have to worry about the debt ceiling. So, right. uh, you know, the debt ceiling, the treasury is actually spending money they don't have right now. Uh, so that's going to be a big showdown all, all, all on its own. And, you know, not to get into politics, I think that it has a lot of implication on liquidity in general. Um, so we need to watch that pretty, pretty carefully as well and how that plays out. Um, I know we've been very US centric, but I wanted to touch real quick about Europe, uh, as well. So Europe is facing dramatic inflation right now, and that whole also has a, a big indication into, um, uh, li- global liquidity, right? Cause the ECB, mm-hmm. uh, cutting rates, et cetera, as well, German food prices year over year up almost 25% CPI is exploding uh, across the EU. Um, that's really it on that. Uh, unless you want to, we want to jump a little bit about the banking again. Yeah. I'd like to just ask like, man, that was, that was a bunch of like really bad indicators, man. <laughs> uh, is, is, 
is that what what's the bull case what what's the what's the the case that uh maybe i'm just asking for hopium if you will right but like what if we take the, if what, what would be the counter argument to all of these like terrible indicators about the health of the economy like oh, is there is there a optimistic per- perspective to take here yeah i mean the reality is this this is probably some of the worst broader macro i've seen in in, in a very long period of time um, but I would say that if inflation does come down quickly because of the banking crisis or things, of, things like that, the employment number is still holding up. So jobs is really the bright, the bright spot here. Retail sales and spending is still positive, right? So if inflation is coming down faster than expected um, in the next few months and the Fed is able to pivot without spurring more inflation and unemployment doesn't doesn't increase uh, or the, the employment numbers stay relatively stable, um, then then that could be saved in time. So if rates start that, going- That is the needle that needs to be thread. That is the needle that needs to be thread. That's exactly right. So so what you saw in those, in those two cases there where the Fed pivot bullish or bearish, um, you know, if the Fed pivot happens uh, before a recession is actually starting, which could happen, right? So if, if inflation comes down fast enough, uh, liquidity improves, et cetera, it's extremely bullish for risk assets a year forward. Um, mm-hmm. So the big question is, can the economy survive without going into a recession by the time the Fed pivots? Because right. the Fed will eventually pivot. The question is, does, it, does the Fed pivot too late? Right. And what you're saying with all these indicators about consumer spending and bank deposits and credit cards, all, all this kind of stuff is you're saying, the economy is kind of running out of time. Right. I, I think it's more likely that the economy will fall into a recession by the time the Fed pivot. They could There could be, you know, sometimes even in 2008, uh, uh, 7 and 2000, the market ran up into the pivot with hopium, mm-hmm. as you as we mentioned. But then when reality right. sinks in, things deteriorate, things have things have sold up. So that's another that's another possibility. But the real the real the real thing you have to see here is these are really the returns one year forward um and it really is about yes recession no recession if you can answer that question by the time the fed pivots you can make a very informed decision of what you want to do okay it kind of seems like everything hangs on that core inflation whether that that can start to turn over because if that starts to turn over that's to me is like the foundation for everything is it do you agree with that the Fed seems to agree with you. Yeah. So that's that's something the Fed watches for. But then other factor could be employment, right? If employment gets really, really bad, mm-hmm. even if inflation remains high, the Fed may still react uh, because they have two mandates, right? They have price stability and full employment. Okay. Okay. Um, what's left in this story to tell or have we circumnavigated it pretty well? I think we've done pretty pretty good of a job. Um, just to touch about the the, the banking system, um, you know, the banking system is still very fragile um, and we are likely to see regulation uh, increase. And one of the things that I am somewhat concerned about is the so-called death of the smaller banks and mm-hmm. more and more money going to the too big to fail. Um, there's other implications to it that could put stress into the economy, such as commercial real estate loans and. Um, and other things like that that could that could impact the economy. So a lot of these smaller and middle-sized banks do a ton of real estate loans when it comes to office space and even um, retail and other things. And if they fail, you could see a big credit issue hitting the economy. 
Um, which again is one of the reasons I think um, they reacted so quickly to to SVB. Um, this is definitely something we're watching for as well. So again, when you think about all these things, small banks, how that plays out, consolidation, inflation, employment, and yes or no in the recession. Right. Yeah. And this is a, a topic of conversation that we've done before. We've had uh, in the, the recent few episodes, uh, it's been the area of focus of me personally, is that the long tail of banks serve the long tail of the economy. And when the long tail of the economy starts to become, um, become underserved, that sounds to be, it sounds like another point in like the, in the recession risk, in the economic uh, uh, contraction risk. Right. Uh, and so uh, I think we're seeing economic contraction risks left and right. right. Uh, you've painted a, a pretty clear picture of that. Uh, and then also um, just the the fleeting nature of some of these bullish signals that some of the, the market has responded to, right? And so like right. my concern has been going into this conversation is like, is this bullishness and like uh, Ether is two and a half times off its floor, Bitcoin is two times off its floor, some risk right. assets and the, the equities markets are really strong. And my worry, my concern is that this is just a spinal reflex of banking crisis. Oh, we get right. the pivot. Right. Uh, and and over or is this just like a short term blip of bullishness inside of a longer term contraction because the Fed the core the Fed couldn't get core CPI under control right. and the the decreasing inflation numbers that we've been talking about on Bankless for the last like few months or so is actually just like a return to a mean if you will where that that base CPI that base inflation is still very very strong so I think that's. I don't feel like I have a clear answer, but I don't think anyone has a clear answer as to the next few steps here. No, that's one of the reasons I said at the beginning of the call that I think the next few months are going to be some of the more interesting ones, because I think a lot of these questions are going to get answered. Um, 2022 is kind of the lead up to this. Um, now, clearly, the market has a very strong reaction function to liquidity. But is that Pavlovian, right? Because you ring the bell and the dogs salivate right. because every time anything right. happened like that with the Fed, things went to the moon. So everyone's salivating again. So I don't know if it's a reaction function or not. Um, and that's right. exactly what I'm what I'm worried about as well. Yeah, it certainly feels like we uh, are at a drum roll and you can see there's somebody with uh, the symbols, the big symbols in the background, and they're ready to smash them together. We don't really know when, but we know that that's coming. Perhaps that's a way to to illustrate the culmination of the of this episode. Exactly, Itai. That was uh, very uh, just a coherence of so many different bits of information, uh, and this it's extremely impressive that you put all of this together. To, uh, just talk a little bit about your process for how th this is such a crazy semblance of data. And yeah. how do you have all of this in your brain? Like how and how do you like put this in a coherent like report so quickly like this? Yeah, so we actually uh, put it as, as a part of our asset management team. Uh, we do this monthly. Um, so mm -hmm. there is a list of indicators that we track at all times. Uh, and we have a daily meeting where we basically discuss new developments um, in the macro and the economy, how that relates to what we're doing, our positioning, our hedging. So we hedge a lot uh, depending on where, where things look like. So we basically put all the pieces together. We follow the checklist. And when you're very versed with all the different indicators that you follow it becomes almost like like a natural thing you do right well it is extremely impressive and it's extremely useful I, i've learned a ton in this uh, short time that we've had together itai thank you so much for guiding through so many different parts of this economy and everything it takes to understand what's going on in macro right now i really appreciate it itai if people want to learn more about equi and, and what you do where should they go equi.com simple as that
And that is equi.com, correct? equi.com, correct. Thank you so much, Itai. Bankless Nation, you know the deal. Uh, the f- next few moments are pivotal. It sounds like uh, we're going to have Itai back on maybe in three months uh, after those symbols come together and crash and we understand the next few steps. Maybe we'll have to ask you to come back and walk us through the next steps for this economy. But until then, Bankless Nation, you know the deal. Risks and disclaimers. Ether is risky. Crypto is risky. Reacting to the Fed pivot or not pivot is also risky. You can lose what you put in. But we are headed west. We are on the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we are glad you are with us on the Bankless journey. Thanks a lot.